Welcome back. We are embarking on book three in A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Chapter 15. <clears throat> Four rooms made up the new flat. They led one into the other and were called railroad rooms. The high, narrow kitchen faced on the yard, which was a flagstone walk surrounding a square of cement-like sour earth out of which nothing could possibly grow. Yet, there was this tree growing in the yard. When Francie first saw it, it was only up to the second story. She could look down on it from her window. It looked like a packed crowd of people of assorted sizes standing umbrella protected in the rain. There was a lean clothes pole in the back of the yard from which six wash lines on pulleys connected with six kitchen windows. The neighborhood boys kept themselves in pocket money by climbing the poles to replace a wash line when it slipped off a pulley. It was believed that the boys climbed the pole in the dead of night and sneaked the line off the pulley to guarantee the next day's dime. On a sunny, windy day, it was pretty to see the lines filled, the square white sheets taking the wind like the sails of a storybook boat, and the red, green, and yellow clothes straining at the wooden pins as though they had life. The pole stood against a brick wall, which was the windowless side of the neighborhood school. Fancy found that no two bricks were alike when she looked real close. It was a soothing rhythm the way that they were put together with crumbly thin lines of white mortar. They glowed when the sun shone on them. They smelled warm and porous when Francie pressed her cheek against them. They were the first to receive the rain and they gave off a wet clay odor that was like the smell of life itself. In the winter, when the first snow was too delicate to last on the sidewalks, it clung to the rough surface of the brick and was like fairy lace. Excuse me just a minute. <coughs> four feet of the schoolyard faced four feet of the schoolyard faced on Francie's yard and was segregated from it by an iron mesh fence. The few times Francie got to play in the yard, it was preempted by the boy who lived on the ground floor who would let no one in, in it, while he was there. She managed to be there at recess time. She watched the horde of children playing in the yard. Recess consisted of getting several hundred children herded into this small, stone-paved enclosure and then getting them out again. Once in the yard, there was no room for games. The children milled about angrily and raised their voices in one steady, monotonous shrieking, which continued unabated for five minutes. It was cut off as if with a sharp knife when the end of recess, end of recess bell clanged. For an instant after the bell, there was dead silence and frozen motion. Then the milling changed to pushing. 
The children seemed as desperately anxious to get in as they had been to get out. The high shrieking changed to subdued wailing as they fought their way back. Francie was in her yard one mid-afternoon when a little girl came out alone into the schoolyard and importantly clapped two blackboard erasers together to free them from chalk dust. To Francie, watching, her face close to the iron mesh, this seemed the most fascinating occupation ever devised. Mama had told her that this was a task reserved for teachers' pets. To Francie, pets meant cats, dogs, and birds. She vowed that when she was old enough to go to school, that she would meow, bark, and chirp as best she could so that she would be a pet and get to clap the erasers together. On this afternoon, she watched with a heart full of admiration in her eyes. The clapper, aware of Francie's admiration, showed off. She clapped the erasers on the brick wall, on the stone walk, and, as a finale, behind her back. She spoke to Francie. Want to see him real close? Francie nodded shyly. The girl brought an eraser close to the mesh. Francie poked a finger through to touch the very colored felt layers blended together by a film of powdered chalk. As she was about to touch this soft beautifulness, the little girl snatched it away and spat full in Francie's face. Francie closed her eyes tightly to keep the hurt, bitter tears from spilling out. The other girl stood there curiously, waiting for the tears. When none came, she taunted, Why don't you bust out crying, you dockle? Want I should spit in your face again? Francie turned and went down into the cellar and sat in the dark a long time, waiting until the waves of hurt stopped breaking over her. It was the first of many disillusionments that were to come as her capacity to feel things grew. She never liked blackboard erasers after that. The kitchen was living room, dining room, and cooking room. There were two long narrow windows in one wall. An iron coal range was recessed in another wall. Above the stove, the recess was made of coral-colored bricks and creamy white plaster. It had a stone mantelpiece and a slate hearthstone on which Francie could draw pictures with chalk. Next to the stove was a water boiler, which got hot when the fire was going. Often on a cold day, Francie came in chilled and put her arms around the boiler and pressed her frosty cheek gratefully against its warm silveriness. Next to the boiler was a pair of soapstone wash tubs with a hinged wooden cover. The partition could be removed and the two thrown into one for a bathtub. It didn't make a very good bathtub. Sometimes when Francie sat in it, the cover banged down on her head. The bottom was rubbly, and she came out of what should have been a refreshing bath all sore from sitting on that wet roughness. 
Then there were four faucets to contend with. No matter how the child tried to remember that they were inflexibly there and wouldn't go away, she would jump up suddenly out of the soapy water and get her back whacked good on a faucet. Francie had a perpetual angry welt on her back. Following the kitchen, there were two bedrooms, one leading into the other. An air shaft diminished like a coffin was built into the bedrooms. The windows were small and dingy gray. You could open an air shaft window, maybe, if you used a chisel and hammer, but when you did, you were rewarded with a blast of cold, dank air. The air shaft was topped by a miniature, slant-roofed skylight, whose heavy, opaque, wrinkled glass was protected from breakage by heavy iron netting. The sides were corrugated iron slats. This arrangement supposedly supplied light and air to the bedrooms, but the heavy glass, iron fencing, and dirt of many years refused to filter the light through. The openings in the sides were choked with dust, soot, and cobwebs. No air could come in, but, stubbornly enough, rain and snow could get in. On stormy days, the wooden bottom of the air shaft was wet and smoky and gave out a tomby smell. The air shaft was a horrible invention. Even with the windows tightly sealed, it served as a sounding box and you could hear everybody's business. Rats scurried around the bottom. There was always the danger of fire. A match absently tossed into the air shaft by a drunken teamster under the impression that he was throwing it into the yard or street would set the house afire in a moment. There were vile things cluttering up the bottom. Since this bottom couldn't be reached by man, the windows being too small to admit the passage of a body, it served as a fearful repository for things that people wanted to put out of their lives. Rusted razor blades and bloody cloths were the most innocent items. Once Francie looked down into the air shaft, she thought of what the priest said about purgatory and figured it must be like the air shaft bottom only on a larger scale. When Francie went into the parlor, she passed through the bedrooms, shuddering and with her eyes shut. The parlor, or front room, was the room. Its two high, narrow windows faced on the exciting street. The third floor was so high up that the street noises were muted into a comforting sound. The room was a place of dignity. It had its own door leading into the hall. Company could be admitted without having to walk through the bedrooms from the kitchen. The high walls were covered with a somber wallpaper, dark brown with golden stripes. Excuse me. The windows had inside shutters of slatted wood, which telescoped into a narrow space on either side. Francie spent many happy hours pulling out these hinged shutters and watching them fold back again at the touch of her hand. It was a never-tiring miracle that that which could cover a whole window and blot out 
light and air could still meekly compress itself into its little closet and present an innocently paneled front to the eye. A low parlor stove was built into a black marble fireplace. Only the front half of the stove was in view. It looked like a giant halved melon with the round side out. It was made of numerous isinglass windows with just enough thin carved iron to form a framework. At Christmas time, the only time Katie could afford to have a fire in the parlor, all of the little windows glowed and Francie felt a great joy sitting there, feeling the warmth and watching the windows change from rosy red to amber as the night wore on. And when Katie came in and lit the gas, chasing the shadows away and paling the light in the stove windows, it was like a great sin that she committed. The most wonderful thing about the front room was the piano. This was a miracle that you could pray for all your life and it would never come to pass. But there it stood in the Nolan parlor, a real true miracle that had come without a wish or a prayer. The piano had been left there by the previous tenants who could not afford to pay to have it removed. Piano moving in those days was a project. No piano could be gotten down those narrow steep stairs. Pianos had to be bundled up, roped, and hoisted out of the windows with an enormous pulley on the roof and with much shouting, arm-waving, and brass hatting on the part of the boss mover. The street had to be roped off, the policemen had to keep the crowds back, and children had to play hooky from school when there was a piano moving. There was always that great moment when the wrapped bulk swung clear of the window and twisted dizzily in the air for a moment before it righted itself. Then began the slow, perilous descent while the children cheered hoarsely. It was a job that cost $15, three times what it cost to move all the rest of the furniture. So the owner asked Katie, could she leave it and would Katie mind it for her? Katie was glad to give her the promise. Wistfully, the woman asked Katie not to let it get damp or cold, to leave the bedroom doors open in winter so a little heat would get through from the kitchen and prevent warping. Can you play it? Katie asked her. No, said the woman sorrowfully. No one in the family can play. I wish I could. Why did you ever buy it? It was in a rich house. The people were selling it cheap. I wanted it so much. No, I couldn't play it. But it was so beautiful. It dresses up the whole room. Katie promised to take good care of it until the woman could afford to send for it. But as things turned out, the woman never did send for it and the Nolans had this beautiful thing for always. It was small and made of black polished wood that glowed darkly. The front of thin veneers was cut out to make a pretty pattern, and there was old rose silk behind this fretted wood design. Its lid did not fold back in sections like other uprights. It just turned back 
and rested against the designed wood like a lovely dark polished shell. There was a candle holder on either side. You could put pure white candles in them and play by the candlelight, which threw dreamy shadows over the creamy ivoried keys, and you could see the keys again in the dark cover. When the Nolans walked into the front room on their first possessive tour of inspection, the piano was the only thing that Francie saw. She tried to get her arms around it, but it was too big. She had to be content to hug the faded rose brocade stool. Katie looked at the piano with dancing eyes. She had noticed a white card in the flat window below which said, Piano Lessons. Katie had an idea. Johnny sat on the magic stool, which turned around and went up or down according to your size, and played. He couldn't play, of course. He couldn't read notes in the first place, but he knew a few chords. He could sing a song and strike a chord now and then, and it really sounded as though he were singing to music. He struck a minor chord, looked into the eyes of his oldest child, and smiled a crooked smile. Francie smiled back, her heart waiting in anticipation. He struck the minor chord again, held it. To its soft echo, he sang in his clear, true voice, Max Wellington's bras are bonny, we early phase the dew, chord, chord. And was there that Annie Laurie guide me her promise true? Chord, 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 chord. <laughs> Francie looked away, not wanting Papa to see her tears. She was afraid he'd ask her why she was crying and she wouldn't be able to tell him. She loved him and she loved the piano. She could find no excuse for her easy tears. Katie spoke. Her voice had some of the old soft tenderness in it which Johnny had been missing in the last year or so. Is that an Irish song, Johnny? Scotch? I never heard you sing it before. No, I guess not. It's just a song I know. I never sing it because it's not the kind of song people want to hear at the rackets where I work. They'd sooner hear call me up some rainy afternoon, except when they're drunk, then nothing but sweet Adeline will do. They were quickly settled in the new place. The familiar furniture looked strange. Francie sat in a chair and was surprised that it felt the same as it had on Lorimer Street. She felt different. Why didn't the chair feel different? The front room looked pretty after Papa and Mama got it fixed up. There was a bright green carpet which had great pink roses. There were starched cream-colored lace curtains for the windows, a table with a marble top for the center of the room, and a three-piece green plush parlor suit. A bamboo stand in the corner held a plush-covered album in which were pictures of the Romilly sisters as babies laying on their stomachs on a fur rug 
and patient-looking great aunts standing at the shoulders of seated, big mustached husbands. Little souvenir cups stood on the small shelves. The cups were pink and blue and had gold-encrusted designs of blue forget-me-nots and red American beauty roses. There were phrases like, remember me, and true friendship painted in gold. The tiny cups and saucers were memories of Katie's old friends, and Francie was never permitted to play house with them. On the bottom shelf stood a curly, bone-white, conscious shell with a delicate, rosy interior. The children loved it dearly and had given it an affectionate name, Tootsie. When Francie held it to her ear, it sang of the great sea. Sometimes, for the delight of his children, Johnny listened to the shell, then held it dramatically at arm's length, looking at it meltingly and saying, Upon the shore I found a shell, I held it to my ear, I listened gladly while it sang a sea song sweet and clear. Later, Francie saw the sea for the first time when Johnny took them to Canarsie. The sea was remarkable only in that it sounded like the tiny sweet roar of Tootsie the conch shell. <laughs>